So the craziest beer I've ever brewed at Pondicetta is a beer called Pina de Fuego, and it was inspired by a hot sauce barrel. So we bought an oak barrel, and uh, it led to this insane beer that was a pineapple hot sauce flavored beer, and it was incredible. You're listening to Buff Speak, the official podcast of the Paul and Virginia Angler College of Business at West Texas A&M University. I am Dr. Nick Gerlich, your host, as we meet up with the thought leaders making an impact today. It is no secret that I'm a huge fan of craft beer. It all started when I stumbled into Fat Tire Ale, which around 2000 was just a regional out of Fort Collins, Colorado. I found it in downtown Amarillo at a bar called Brewster's. And just like that, I was sucked in. Back then, there were only about 2,000 craft breweries in the U.S., having had their start in California as early as the mid-70s. Today, though, and in spite of COVID and the gloom and doom many predicted, there are now more than 9,200 in the U.S. alone. That's one brewery for every 36,000 people, which, while it may not sound like a lot, is nearly 14 times as many breweries that existed the year before Prohibition was enacted. And while we don't have many places in Amarillo brewing beer, we do have a few. Our guest today is Caleb West, owner at Pondicetta Brewing Company on 45th Avenue Southwest. Pondicetta has tapped into, sorry about my bad pun, a growing thirst here in the area for great beer that packs local flavor. Caleb, how did you get started in all this? Uh, so I think I got into beer through through just being excited by flavor and I, you know, uh, cuisine and things like that. But uh, the start into brewing was my then girlfriend, now wife, bought me a book about home brewing, and from the first beer we made, I was I was hooked, and I I knew one day I would open a brewery. I think that's a pretty common uh, startup story too. And what kind of work did you leave behind to pursue being a brewery owner? Um, so the the last sort of career-related thing I did was um, I, I managed a bike shop in Austin. Um, all the while, I had intended to get into the beer business, um, but kind of went down a different path for a few years and really enjoyed my time in the cycling industry. Um, right before we opened the brewery, though, I also started working for a company that makes brewing equipment, and it was a great introduction to, you know, equipment and manufacturing. Well, bikes and beer seem like a marriage uh, made in heaven. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. We had a we had a standing Wednesday night beer night at the bike shop where customers and staff would just start drinking about four in the afternoon. And that led to a, a lot of extended nights and, and honestly, great bike sales. <laughs> <laughs> While there aren't many craft brewing options available in the Amarillo area, there are thousands of different individual beers available in stores and in restaurants, even here. What do you bring to the bar, so to speak, that sets yours apart from all the rest? Well, I think that that everybody likes this concept of locally made. And if we go if we go back in history to, you know, early days of beer, it was always made at the at the local public house. And, you know, you, you drank what they had because that's what the only option you had available to you. And so I think that idea sort of follows us into the craft beer industry as of now. You know, people really relate to something made in their hometown. Um, but, but to go alongside that, we wanted to create something that had this um, quality-driven, modern approach to beer as well. And I think that's not always obvious when you have beer from thousands of miles away. 
So which ones are your flagship beers, the ones you've got available all the time? So we keep four beers available year-round. Um, we have an American lager that's called Premium. We have an American Amber Ale called Sunrise. And then we have two different IPAs. One is a more traditional West Coast IPA called I-40. And then the last one is called the Fast and the Hazy. And it is more of a, I don't know, juicy, hazy IPA, which is sort of a New England style that is much less bitter and a lot more fruit forward. Uh, but all of those flavors are derived from hops and yeast rather than fruit. And how many beers do you normally have on the menu? So at any given time, we actually have um, 17 beers on draft uh, and some can offerings that are available for can pours. Um, I think right now we've probably got 12 different can options to go as well, like pre-filled, properly you know, made cans. Um, so quite a bit of variety. <laughs> have you participated in any of the regional or national beer competitions? We have. Um, there's a, a few local things that we've um, entered beer in and just participate in that's been, you know, a lot of fun just for the, the local community piece of it. Uh, but recently we entered into the first annual Texas Craft Brewers Cup, which is a statewide competition. And we actually won two, uh, two medals in that. And it was, we we're incredibly proud. So we won a gold medal for a mixed culture sour we did called Blended Family. And we won a bronze medal for Pawtech Pills, which anybody who is familiar with the brewing industry knows that Pilsner is uh, an iconic style and also a very difficult beer to, to score well with. And so we're really proud. How many different beers do you brew in a year? Because it seems like every time I stop in there, the menu has changed. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's that's probably safe to say. We we average one uh, one to two releases per week, um, every week. And some of those are draft-only releases. Some of those are full-fledged canned product runs as well. Uh, in our first year, we released over 100 unique beers. Uh, but I would say at this point, we've sort of slid into like a, a 70 to 80 range. <laughs> and that, you know, not every single beer is brand new. It's, it's repeats from the year before and things like that. So how does a beer go from concept on paper to delicious foamy beverage in a, <laughs> in a pint glass? Uh it's sometimes a lot simpler than you think and sometimes just as complicated as you can imagine. Um, we, we usually have a, a, you know, a beer concept in mind um, and then just sort of go from there. But, uh, but to get to that point, sometimes it's literally as simple as, you know, you wake up in the middle of the night at 4 a.m. and you just are struck with this genius idea of some flavor combination and then we work backwards on how to, how to do it. Other times it's, Hey, we haven't released a specialty IPA in a month. What are we What are we thinking we're going to do next? Let's use these new hops, and then we sort of start building from there. Not necessarily knowing what the exact end result might be, but um, I can think of one in particular that's a kind of a fun story. I was uh, on a walk to distract myself from the business and everything else, just getting some fresh air, and all of a sudden I had this um, vision of a lemon curd dessert with blackberries and sea salt on top, and that led to a beer called Blackberry Entanglement. So this is really just chemistry, right? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's for for myself and my business partner. It's it's this like perfect combination of science, art, and physical labor. Um, which luckily I don't have to do nearly as much of that anymore. But uh, you know, we we like to get our hands dirty, but we're also doing some very technical things and you know, researching uh, some really in depth chemistry. So how long does it take to? go through the brewing process uh, before you 
you know, put it in a tank to ferment. Is that an all-day thing, like, a, you know, a big, an all-day cooking festival or what? Yeah, so we sort of refer to that process as our brew day. Um, and for most beers, that's a six- to eight-hour process, depending on what we're trying to accomplish. Um, you know, it's uh, a mash process where we're actually putting the grains in and converting those uh, starches into sugars. And that's where we get a lot of the color and, you know, base flavor and, you know, whatever amount of sugar we, we net during that process equals how much alcohol we're going to have for the final product, uh, just based on what fermentation can create. Um, but, you know, we have some beers that are like imperial stouts that might end up having a six-hour boil, whereas our normal process is only a one-hour boil. So you can imagine the, the time increase there. Um, from there, it goes into, like you were mentioning, it goes into a fermentation tank. And, you know, it's anywhere from four days in fer active fermentation to probably 10 uh, days. Um, most of our beers are finished and ready to drink in that three-week range. And you mentioned about the, the culture of uh, brewing in the old days, you know, like a century ago, it was truly a local experience. I, I've come to know that there is a local company, or I should say a farm, that grows the barley malt that you use in some of your beers, right? Yeah, absolutely. So um, it's kind of a nationwide phenomenon, if you will, this back to craft culture within all industry, all parts of our industry, at least. And so uh, we have Maverick Malt House is based in Wilderado. Um, and a malt house doesn't even have to grow their own barley. They just take barley that's grown and turn it into malt, which is essentially a a germinating process that allows us to just have better access to the sugars that can be within the grain. Uh, but these guys actually also have farms and are literally, like you said, they're growing barley in West Texas and um, and then they're malting it and then we're turning that piece into beer. And have you been able to source hops locally? Uh, you know, we have a friend who has been experimenting with a hop farm up near uh, Dalhart um, and we have gotten some of his uh, early harvests from that. Uh, but Honestly, or unfortunately, I should say, Texas isn't particularly hospitable to hop growing. Um, you know, uh, the Panhandle has a close climate to what might be needed in some ways, but our wind and drought conditions usually exacerbate any po uh, problems. Distribution is typically the biggest challenge for craft brewers. There's so many beers nationwide all screaming for our attention. So gaining a spot on the supermarket or liquor store shelf is difficult, not to mention landing on one of the lucrative tap positions at a bar. How many food and beverage places are you in, and what about retail stores? Um, we're in just over 80 uh, wholesale accounts across Amarillo and Lubbock uh, and Canyon as well. Uh, so our focus is still in our, our home market, so to speak. We kind of view Lubbock as an extension of at least the Amarillo panhandle culture. I hope, hope nobody from Lubbock takes offense to that by any means, but you know, we have a lot to relate to. So, uh, we don't, we don't go any further than that, but we have tried to, uh, really saturate the Amarillo market in, in a way that, you know, is, is, um, good for the community and good for beer. And so it's been an interesting experience finding which accounts are, or which, which restaurants are going to support the, you know, the project and, and all of those pieces. And what about crossing state lines? I, I have recently seen, um, a beer from one of the bigger breweries in Albuquerque, suddenly available here now in Amarillo. It, it seems like this shouldn't be a big deal. It's only four hours away, yet I bet it's a little more complicated than that. Yeah, it's it's insanely complicated, unfortunately. Um, 
you have to be licensed uh, by the federal government and your state that you're producing beer in. But if you start trying to cross state lines, it's illegal for me as a brewer to take beer across the state line by myself. And so not only do I have to be licensed in the new state, um, I'd have to have a wholesaler who has a license to cross the state line to to move it or or potentially a freight company who has the license to do that. Um, so, you know, uh, we have a lot in common with Albuquerque as, as Amarillo, I would say, more so possibly even than a market like DFW or Houston. But it's easier for me to get beer to Houston than it is to get beer into Albuquerque. You have chosen to can your beer instead of bottle it. How did you make that decision and why? Well, um, I, I don't know if I would have the same answer if I had started a year later during the pandemic, but uh, it was a pretty easy decision from the from the outlook for us because uh, can p- uh, product has um, better protection for the beer itself. And so uh, it may seem surprising or counterintuitive, but there's no light that can get into a can of beer, whereas uh, even an amber glass bottle you know, allows some light into the product. And the biggest enemies of packaged beer are sunlight or UV rays and oxygen. And so um, there has been some significant um, improvements in the manufacturing side of things. So there are more, uh, there's more access to small canning lines than there used to be. And that was a, a pretty new phenomenon in, you know, the, the 20 teens. And so, um, you know, looking at opening our brewery in 2016, 17, 18 period, that was something that we were really excited about and were able to kind of launch with. I love your location over there on 45th Avenue Southwest, right across from Walmart and in the middle of Amarillo's residential sprawl. I mean, it just seems perfect to me because let's say, you know, a family goes out shopping and one of the spouses says, you know, honey, you go on. I'm going to hang out over here across the street. Do you get much of that? Uh, absolutely. Especially during the holiday season. That's uh, <laughs> it's pretty entertaining. Oh, somebody. And, and honestly, sometimes it's, um, you know, I was sent to go get this. And it's like, well, I'm going to go to Walmart because I know Pondicet is right there or whatever the case might be. And so that's been a pretty fun fun thing to watch or or we have couples come in together and it's like well we got to go grocery shopping but doing that before a beer is not as much fun as doing that after two beers so so was this place always your plan or did you just get lucky on a prime location becoming available i mean after all a former tire store with roll-up doors is perfect for a tap room yeah i think um I think it's a lot of a lot of luck. Maybe it's a little bit kismet. It's uh, we actually had some grand visions in in other locations. In fact, we were originally hoping to open our brewery in Canyon, and um, through a bunch of complicated dealings, that fell apart. And then uh, we were sort of scrambling for a while, and and honestly, we're pretty discouraged about all things business startup related. We uh, we weren't getting the investment and the funding that we had hoped we were going to get, and the dream location fell through. And so, you know, there were many afternoons where my business partner and I were just driving around like, what are we going to do looking at property and just trying to think and envision where our, our stuff might be. And so uh, one afternoon that we were, again, feeling kind of down about ourselves and, the, and, and starting a business, we were driving down Coulter and called on an empty lot just thinking well there's no way we can afford this empty lot but let's just see like maybe maybe we build a metal building here and see what we can accomplish and uh you know uh, as expected that lot was very expensive with the coulter frontage but the the realtor uh, had a great suggestion he's like we've got this property that's been sitting empty you need to go take a look at and and once we saw it we were we were committed like that was a great location so after several years now of going through the seasons of beer drinking 
which, you know, there really are seasons. You, we tend to drink a little lighter stuff in the summer and darker, heartier beers in the wintertime. Which one has emerged as your bestseller? Um, you know, I think that maybe this one defies the seasonal logic to a degree, but our best-selling beer is the Fast and the Hazy, which is our hazy IPA. Um, it's far and away our bestseller. It's pretty wild. And in a market that, honestly, people didn't expect to... We were told before we opened that nobody in Amarillo drinks IPAs, which is patently false. But, uh, you know, it's it, it was funny because we, we also wondered what would the demand be for something that's sort of more intense or bolder in flavor. Uh, but but that's turned out to be our bestseller. It's followed closely by um, our American Lager uh, Premium. So, Well, you've had enough time in the business now to be able to reflect, uh, you know, to look back and see how far you've come and all this. And I... And I Recall reading on your website, you had a history as a musician uh, before the bike store, right? Yeah, that's correct. And, uh, and you wound up brewing beer as a hobby. What's it like turning a hobby into a career? And do you ever feel like a kid in a candy store with all that beer around? I mean, geez, I know I would be going crazy. Or has that all worn off and it's all about business now? I. I'd say a, a lot of each of the above to a degree. It's, um, you know, when you when you have to go to work uh, for the seventh day or 15th day in a row, you, you realize it is still absolutely a job. But, you know, the good news is the job for us is still in beer. Um, you know, and I'd, I'd be uh, lying if I didn't say that, you know, working around alcohol can present challenges too because, you know, here here we are, like you said, surrounded by beer, kid in a candy store sort of vibe. I mean, we love beer. We we like to enjoy it and drink it and feel good. Um, all of those things said, though, you know, there's expectations that, you know, when a when a regular customer comes in, it's like, oh, well, have a beer with me. And you, know, you do that enough times in a day and all of a sudden you're you're not going to accomplish much. So that's something that we've had to navigate a little bit. And um, I think we're 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 handling pretty well, but it's uh, has been an interesting learning curve. Um all that to say, I, I really love what I do, and at this point, I can't imagine uh, going back to the real world. Caleb, you're a young man and, and a successful entrepreneur. Um, how old are you? I'm 33. 33, and you've been in business how many years now? Uh, three and a half years. Three and a half years. I, I was pretty proud of the fact we got the doors open right before my 30th birthday. So that's great. I mean, if anything, my students should take inspiration from the fact that a young person could can open a very successful business and and do well with it. Yeah, I, I mean, I I'm proud of it, and I think that it it just goes to show that it takes a little bit of a lot of a lot of bit of effort, a little bit of luck, and a little bit of dedication. And I think that there's a lot that can be accomplished. After the break, we'll take a look at challenges that Caleb has faced in Amarillo as well as during the pandemic. There's a reason why our programs are rated so highly by independent reviewers. We are committed to continuously improving what we do. Whether it is in the classroom or online, the Paul and Virginia Angler College of Business strives to stay ahead of the curve, not behind it. Join us in the classroom or online and see the difference. We're WCSB accredited and among the most elite business schools around the world. Reach for the stars and do it with a WT business degree in hand. For more info, find us online at wtamu.edu slash cob or call 806-651-2525. From the Texas Panhandle to the world, we are here to help you reach for those stars. It took craft beer a long time to find its way to Amarillo. 
this is a light beer kind of town, whether it's Coors, Bud, or Michelob Ultra. The fuller-bodied taste of many craft beers can be an acquired taste, and it simply took a while for people to warm up to it. And yet we still have few options, given the population of the area. Why do you think this is so? And that's a that's a big open-ended question. I think that I think that the beer market is going to continue to grow. I think we were stunted a little bit here recently with COVID and all of the fallout. Um, that being said, the you know when we look to Amarillo uh, as a place to open a business, you know we saw a few things. One was community, and the second was opportunity, um, partly because of those things you just mentioned. So I think it takes some people looking at it through that lens to to really expand beer in this community, but. Um, you know, we were convinced that we could make this work because of, you know, the results of a few restaurants in town that were already pushing, pushing that boundary, so to speak. And so, you know, we looked at 575 Pizzeria has had an incredible craft beer selection. When they opened their hillside location, it just got even larger in that, in that regard. And they took a great, you know, passionate approach to beer. Uh, Yellow City Street Food comes to mind as well for the same reasons, you know, smaller operation, but a, again, a huge craft beer focus with their menu. Um, and then, you know, in Canyon, we saw Imperial Taproom who, who did really well for the first couple of years and, and, you know, pushing the boundaries of craft beer in our community, you know, even to the point that, uh, you know, some of those light beer drinkers are, are uncomfortable, but I think we've got to make some of those people uncomfortable some of the time. And certainly we want them to feel welcome in the, in the craft beer world. But, you know, if, if we don't push them to try new things, then, then craft beer won't, won't exist. Is there anything you do to try to get non-craft beer drinkers to give yours a try? I mean, do you ever say things like, hey, if you're a Coors Light fan, you'll like this one? Yeah, and we actually have two beers that we kind of lean into in that similar way. And, and I, I'm careful not to tell a Coors Light drinker that they'll like anything because, uh, you know, it's one of those things that people are pretty, you know, loyal to their brands. Um, so uh, my, my thought is, or process is usually... I know you usually drink Coors Light. This isn't a Coors Light, but, you know, maybe consider it more like a Coors Banquet. <laughs> this is, uh, or a Bud Heavy, for example, you know, so we, we point them towards our American lager and say, this is, this isn't going to taste like it, but this is the, the closest thing we make. And, you know, we can emphasize pretty well that it's made locally and made with local grown grains for that beer as well. So it's, it's a reason for them to step outside of their comfort zone. Um, and, you know, our, our, our goal is not to entirely replace those macro lagers on the shelf in Amarillo, but is to maybe prevent, you know, present a, an alternative or, you know, an occasional splurge for some of those drinkers. Um, similarly, we use uh, Sunrise Amber as an alternative to Shiner Buck. Certainly not a buck and certainly not the exact same thing, but if they like those sort of caramel flavors and these drier, you know, heartier notes, um, then then Sunrise Amber is a, is a good option. And so we found that, uh, for lack of maybe a better term, our cowboy drinkers actually enjoy both those beers quite a lot. Well, it's, it's not a whole lot unlike uh, learning how to enjoy wine. Um, you start out with a $6 bottle you get at the discount store, but... If you stick with it long enough, you might find yourself drinking a $25 bottle and actually being able to tell the differences. Totally. Yeah, I mean, and I think that that, that extends to a lot of uh, aspects of our beer styles and, and beers in general is, you know, the first time, I think the first time anybody drinks an IPA, they're, they're a little shell-shocked maybe. <laughs> uh, I remember the first time I had or ever had a Sierra Nevada Torpedo. I didn't even know what IPA was. We, we read on the bottle, it says extra IPA. And we're like, what, what is that? And we're like, Ooh, that's a strong beer. And we didn't, you know, in retrospect, it's so funny that I went from that to, to where I am today. And, you know, IPA is probably my favorite beer style. So 
it's uh, it takes some some practice and some some repetition, if you will, to to really find yourself comfortable with those things, like you mentioned. Yeah. Well, IPAs are kind of like the unfiltered camels of the beer world. <laughs> I've noticed through the years that craft beer drinkers are very different from consumers of mass-produced mainstream beers. And whereas those people tend to be loyal to their brand, craft beer drinkers are promiscuous. They like to drink around. Thus, they tend to be loyal to craft beer, but not necessarily any one brewer or beer. What are your thoughts on this? Um, Honestly, I think that's one of my favorite parts about our industry. Um, It's a very... I think it's a very unique problem to craft brewers, like you said, because our our people are always looking for something else um, or or open to trying something else. But I think it also leads to this camaraderie between craft brewers. And I mean, at this point, some of my best friends are our fellow brewery owners or brewers. And we see each other as friendly competition sometimes, but honestly, we see each other more as collaborators than direct competition, even if we were selling beer in the same market. And so, you know, even myself, we went out for a lunch yesterday at 575 and we were drinking other people's beer because, you know, drink a lot of Pondesetta, but I want to see what else is out there. And, and so I find myself in the same boat. So is it safe to say that craft beer drinking has become its own community of sorts? And if so... How is that different from people just gathering in a bar to drink beer? Absolutely. I think there is a difference. And I think we do have a, a culture. And I think that we're still defining what that culture is, which I think is good because, you know, as anything, it starts as a pretty um, singular focus or a singular vision. And and reality is that we want everybody to feel comfortable inside the craft beer community. And there's been a lot of conversations surrounding diversity and equity within our community. But you know, I, I think that's a that means that we're we're moving in a direction that we're just trying to make people feel comfortable and and so, you know, we we talk about this sometimes amongst you know my my network of other brewery owners is uh, it's a lot different to walk into a tap room than it is to walk into a bar. But the the practical answer is you're still just going to a bar to have a beer sometimes. But you know, uh, we're proud of the fact that Pondesetta is a family friendly place and it sort of meters itself. Obviously, there's there's seldom kids there at 9 p.m. But you know, realistically. We wanted to create an environment where everybody wanted to come and have a beer. And I think that that vibe and that intention probably helps inform the customer as to what to expect. In uh, more academic terms, we would say that this is uh, variety-seeking behavior. How do you try to appeal to that variety-seeking behavior that so many craft beer drinkers demonstrate? Well, I think we sort of touched on that earlier is, you know, when we release one new beer per week on average, that's that's how we try to attract and retain those those customers. And so, do you offer flights? We do. We also, uh, yeah, we offer four-ounce pours of anything on our menu um, so that that way, you know, if, if you're either trying to spread out your enjoyment over multiple beer styles or whatever, then you can do that. Or if you're wanting to test the waters before you commit to something, you know, 20, you know, 16 ounces of something, you you can do that as well. Uh, just as sidebar, I'm a bit of a beer traveler, and um, I go to craft breweries all over the country, and my, my normal MO is to order a flight. And if I can get a flight of IPAs, that's even better. Uh, but my, my whole plan is to sample four or five ounces of each, and then I have a pint of the one I like the best. And, it, and then if I can, I'll buy a growler or a, a, a crowler 
and I should probably explain here, a growler is a 64-ounce glass uh, vessel usually, and then the crawler is the aluminum 32-ounce can. That's the souvenir to me, the right. takeaway. But it's all through the trial and error process of going through that flight to get to there. To get right, to that and point. I mean, I'll just say that from a, from a brewer's perspective— I don't know this. I I, I don't want to discourage anybody from ever ordering a flight because I think it's such a valuable tool as a consumer and and even for me as as an owner of a brewery. But again, from a brewer's perspective, you know we like people to enjoy enjoy something in this like full serving format. So I you know I think you've got the right approach when you say start with a flight to test a few beers out. But following up with a pint is you know oftentimes viewed as the proper way, right? It's you you want to have the full experience from start to finish. So. Your, your beer obviously changes as you drink it. And I don't know if everybody thinks about these things as they start to drink them, but, you know, when you get halfway through a, a tulip of an IPA, you can get a whole different sensory experience than you do when you've got a, a brimful glass of, of anything. Craft beer aficionados are sometimes stereotyped, and, and I, I have to think it's just a little bit wrong, but uh, the stereotype is that of a hipster uh, wearing his tight skinny jeans with a handlebar mustache and zooming around town on a fixed gear bike. Uh, you know, it's very Portland-ish, if you will, but that doesn't really seem to be happening, at least here in Amarillo. If you had to profile the typical craft beer connoisseur, how would you do it? Well, I think I think like everybody, I probably had some of that outlook in my mind before opening our brewery, but... Uh... Uh, it's it's wild to me. Our demographics are actually skew pretty heavily towards um, uh, older established couples and 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 individuals in general. But you know, I, I'd say our, our biggest age bracket is forty to fifty years old. Um, makes up the majority of our clientele. Um, but then you know, we do have younger drinkers. Uh, um, surprisingly, we have few college kids that that do it. But uh, but I think that's something that you start to see in more developed craft markets. So I, I can only imagine and, you know, I've seen it with my own eyes. And if you go to Denver, which is a much more established craft beer community, you have younger drinkers, you have people who are turning 21. And on their 21st birthday, instead of going to a bar and doing shots till they fall over they're they're going to their favorite brewery that they're, you know, that they've grown up with, uh, that their parents have drank and things like that. And so, you know, recently, uh, a supporter of ours early on, his son turned 21, and uh, they brought him to the brewery as opposed to any of those other things, which is a pretty exciting thing. How important is merchandising to you? I mean, I've, I visit many breweries, uh, and invariably I wind up buying something as a souvenir, whether it's the 64-ounce growler, a T-shirt, maybe even a tap handle. And the more I like their beers, the more merchandise I buy. Do you see the same phenomenon? Absolutely. I think um, there's almost this uh, uh, portion of our business that we, we consider ourselves approaching like a lifestyle brand identity. And, and that's across our, our, our whole craft beer industry. You know, uh, a friend of mine was joking that his brewery, it might as well be a, a you know, a gap for, for beer drinkers. And, you know, because he sells almost as much in merch on a given day, he says, than, than beer. But, um, you know, for us, it's, it's a lot to do with how we want to present ourselves. And so we, we put a lot of effort into our art and merchandising. And, and I think that that, that also is reflected in, in how many hats and stickers you see around the community for, for our brand. The COVID pandemic presented formidable challenges for many businesses, especially bars, tap rooms, and restaurants. You have clearly survived even the worst aspects of the last couple of years. But 
I know it wasn't easy. What things did you do to be able to stay open and continue to sell beer? Well, um, it's an incredible, scary moment at the start. And I, while I'd like to think we're mostly through it, we're, we're still sort of reeling with some of these challenges and fallout pieces. But I think the thing that really allowed us to continue operating throughout is we quickly pivoted to a to-go model. Um, so whereas most craft breweries um, probably make the majority of their income, us included, on draft beer sold across their own bar and their tap room, uh, that was no longer an option. So we had to come up with a way to get liquid into people's hands. And um, so we started putting every product we made into cans, um, which was not necessarily the way we operated in 2019. You know, 2019, we did a few beer releases in cans, obviously, but but it was only certain beers and certain styles and certain things that we thought just maybe had a little more longevity. Um, so in late March of 2020, we we just started ordering as many cans and as many art labels as we could come up with, and and we opened our uh, opened up our drive-through line essentially. And so we put our a couple of our bartenders out on the front steps, and they just walked up to your window and asked, "What do you need?" and and fulfilled six-pack orders essentially. Well, and our governor also had implemented some uh, restrictions on percentage of sales that were non-alcohol basically or, that, or it could yeah, be food correct. and merch how did you navigate those waters yeah so as as things started to open back up slightly over the summer then we started running into this issue that even though we don't consider ourselves a bar like we were just talking about we qualify as a bar according to the state and throughout most of 2020 and and even into early 2021 bars were prohibited from operating uh, and that like you said was based on a percentage uh, of alcohol sold so um <laughs> we got very creative <clears throat> Excuse me, and and we we actually started offering combo items, so like your McDonald's combos, if you will. Uh, we in, we sort of forced you to purchase other items with each beer you drank, and so it allowed us to reopen. We did have we did have food service during that period as well, which I think was a was a key requirement within within the law. But we we sold I think seven thousand pint glasses over that period of time, um, which is probably seven to 20 times more than I would have sold otherwise. Um, and so, you know, essentially the way we framed it is uh, when you come in, here's our beer menu. Our beer prices stayed the same, but we offered small upgrades to get your combo purchase. And so, you know, a $1 pint glass add-on or a $1 sticker add-on um, or a snack. And so all of these items, then we we could actually list as a combo purchase and and sort of allowed us to get creative with our with our reporting. So what did you learn about being able to pivot during such extraordinary circumstances? And did you ever start to doubt you would make it? I can't say there was never scary moments, but I think we just knew we were going to keep pushing forward. Um, and so I, I'm incredibly grateful that we were had a year of open, you know, a year of business under our belts before this happened. I can only imagine what it would have felt like had we opened in, say, uh, you know, November of 2019 versus November of 2018. Um, it would have been so much scarier, I think. Uh, and we just would have been so much less polished, even though I don't think we were perfect on any of our execution during 2020. Uh, I don't know that you could be. So I think that, you know, having that little bit of background ahead of time was, was super helpful. And then, um, you know, I think it was just 
being ready to make changes and, and being ready to roll with whatever came up. There's Even today, we're still rolling through some of these issues. You know, Now it looks more like supply chain issues and, and honestly some staffing issues as well, but you know, we just we just have to keep keep moving. We show up every day and we we make a beer. Usually we have a beer and, and, and we keep going. I've noticed you've had a lot of third party food trucks and trailers uh, quite often at the brewery. And these are so typical of craft brewers around the country, particularly those that do not have commercial kitchens to have their own on site restaurant. But now you have your own food trailer. How important is food to the mix? We found it to be more important than we anticipated, honestly. And and we always had envisioned having some snack options, you know, something simple like a cheese board um, offered through our through our own our own tap room. And then, you know, with the option to have on busier nights, the the guest food truck thing. Well, turns out people really like the idea of having food with their beer, um, you know. And so what we learned was even if those customers didn't eat food from the food truck. They were comforted by knowing that they had that option. Say they had one more beer than they maybe intended. And, and then here we are and they're like, well, I can get a burger and, 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 and I, and I feel more, more comfortable. Um, and, and so I think that mentality really affects us. We would, we would generally speaking, lose a thousand dollars worth of beer sales on a Friday night. If our food, if our guest food truck canceled, uh, and it's not because those people were going to eat a thousand dollars worth of food or anything like that. It's, it's just that, that thing they walk in, Hey, what's the food truck tonight? Oh, they canceled. And then they might stay for one beer instead of four, or they might just turn around and say, well, we'll come back next time. When we come back, we'll look into the crystal ball and see where craft beer is going. Paying taxes is never fun, and for this reason, there's always a demand for more CPAs. Our MPA degree or Master's in Public Accounting prepares students to take the CPA exam and helps our clients navigate those tricky waters. Or you could use this as a stepping stone towards a PhD in a career in academia. Either way, our MPA will ensure that you are up to date on all of the generally accepted accounting principles and ready to toil in the world of taxation, debits, and credits. We're AA CSB accredited and among the most elite of business schools around the world. Reach for the stars and do it with the WT MPA in hand. Waivers are available for the GMAT. For more information, find us at wtamu.edu slash cob or give us a call at 806-651-2500. From the Texas Panhandle to the world, we're here to help you reach for those stars. The culture of craft beer has long been one of independence, but in the last 25 years, starting first with a trickle, uh, but now picking up steam, we see a lot of mergers and acquisitions. We see larger regionals coming together to form new partnerships, as well as giant global brewers gobbling up some of the more successful craft breweries. Is this good or bad for craft beer? I would pretty firm firm stance that that's pretty bad for our industry. Um, consolidation and sort of I don't know, a little bit of globalization of craft beer, if you will, uh, can present nice opportunities from a business perspective, but I think is generally going to be worse for the consumer. Um, you know, the reason a lot of people really like their local craft brewery is because they know it's it's there and they know the people who are working behind the counter. And and despite the fact that there's been a lot of empty promises about, oh, well, we won't change anything at this brewery we just purchased uh, or things like that, it, the inevitable reality is they consolidate production, they consolidate staffing. You know, thousands of people have lost their jobs in craft beers as a re- direct result of this this sort of consolidation in the industry. Um, 
and it's also, I think, important to to call out the fact that these large brewers, uh, and we're talking AB InBev, which is is Budweiser, but but realistically is a Belgium conglomerate that owns this iconic American brand, um, has every intention of putting craft beer out of business. It, we're bad for their bottom line. Um, there's a lot of things that can be bad for you know a beverage company, but but this exciting little guy seems to really antagonize them. And so, uh, you know, when you see this large conglomerate purchase a small brewery, it, it, it is a bad sign, I think, for a lot of us. Craft beer has a 13.1% market share by volume, but 26.8% share by revenue. This attests to the fact that craft beer typically costs significantly more than the mass-produced beers, and still it's only a small corner of the overall market. Why are the big brewers so concerned about it then? Well, I, I honestly think a little bit of it is just uh, fear of change and, and, you know, this sort of writing on the wall that people are looking for more exciting and more more interesting flavors. So I think that's a piece of it. Uh, I think another piece of it is that um, they've controlled the operation for, for decades up to this, you know, at this point. Since Prohibition, there has been very little variety and diversity in craft, or, well, in beer in general. And, you know, there's been a couple of waves of craft beer success, you know, one being in the 90s, but that that exploded pretty, pretty poorly for beer um, and, and sort of fell apart. And so we all, I think, have anticipated that there's been a, a surge and there's going to be a bubble. And, and, and so far that that hasn't happened. And I think that's what's scary for them. Another thing I've noticed is that craft beer has a flavor of the month mindset with one particular style being popular for a while and driving new beer introductions only to be replaced by something newer and shinier. So, you know, we've ridden the crest of IPAs, double IPAs, triple IPAs, and all their many West Coast hazy blah, blah, blah varietals. We've survived. I mean, I've suffered through the sour Gose introductions. I'm not a big fan, unfortunately. And I've had plenty of Mexican lagers. What's next for the craft beer industry and is this a race to see who can come up with the craziest beers ever? Yeah, I think I think you present a really great question because, um, you know, I think this is an extension of some of our sort of consumerist habits, like outside of just craft beer as well. I mean, you look at uh, you look at Starbucks menu, right? There's always that new flavor, and and they're all real big flavors at this point. There's a there's a big shift there from used to you know maybe you had a choice between a, a latte and americano and a black coffee, and, and I'm not saying that those changes are bad changes. It's just that that extends into this beer world too. And I I do think though that the next trend is back towards drinkability, if you will, maybe towards balance. Uh, I don't think we're chasing the craziest thing ever. I don't. Th- well, I mean, we are. <laughs> we have been as an industry, but but I think that that's starting to shift a little bit. And I think we're still going to have these consumers who want these. You know, the, the latest thing is probably uh, like a smoothie style sour beer, which honestly is not even all that sour from a from a perceived acid level or tartness level, but it's just loaded with fruit and you know thicker mouthfeel and you know all these things. But but they're also incredibly sweet and you know lots of flavor. So you can't really sit and drink four of those or two of those or whatever it might be. And so there's been a, a like I said, a, a slight shift we're noticing back towards um, Pilsner, um, 
and you have a lot of American. You mentioned Mexican style craft log or Mexican style lagers. Well, there's I think every brewery in in the world right now is making a Mexican style lager. Ours is about to come out. Um, you know, we have an American lager on our you know flagship lineup, and uh, we do a rotating Pilsner series, and and those beers are, do really well for us. So I think that you're seeing this this sort of shift back towards like I like exciting and I like I like fresh and I like intense stuff but I also want something that I can that I can drink two or three of we've got a lot of competition out there in in the alcoholic beverage sector I mean you've got seltzers and before that ciders were really big you've got canned cocktails mocktails canned wine canned hard liquors you got everything out there how do you make your voice louder and rise above all that distraction in the market yeah i think that's a that's a hard thing to find the answer to right now and i think you know we're we're seeing that to be uh, a persistent problem because like you said it, it it's not just one thing and just when it was only one other piece of competition then something replaced it and all of a sudden now there's there's three or four things on the shelf um you know i think so that's something that craft beer is going to have to have to put some some serious soul searching into to sort of figure that out but i think where we can always excel is is leaning into our you know community focused aspect. So I think that's something that we're pretty proud of at Pondasada is uh, we we want to represent our community. We want to invite our community into our operation and these things. And so, despite the fact that there are a lot of these canned cocktails out there, and like you said, seltzer, um, and some of our craft breweries are making seltzers as well, which don't mean to diminish that. But you know, most people aren't traveling to, you know these places to drink a, a canned cocktail at their establishment. That's, that's what, that's what our tap rooms are. And, and, and our tap rooms are sort of our, you know, embassy to, to the world. And what about the local market? Where do you see craft beer going in Amarillo and the Texas Panhandle? And how many craft breweries do you think we can support? Well, I, I remember distinctly writing in my business plan that Amarillo could theoretically support five operating craft breweries just based on sort of our rural population surrounding it. Um, you know, there's at the time there was, I think, approaching 500,000 people north of Lubbock. Uh, I think that number is up since then. Um, that being said, uh, I think there's a lot of a lot of room for craft beer to grow. And I, I, I'm really proud of the impact we've seemingly made on the, the Amarillo community and, you know, People, people recognize our, our brand and our identity. Uh, I think that that's going to grow. And I, I hope that, um, genuinely hope that some other breweries or other entrepreneurs will look at the market in Amarillo and think, wow, look, look what Ponte is doing. We can do this too. And so I think even though the initial impact of another brewery opening might, might slightly impact my sales initially, I think that with a, a couple of other breweries operating in Amarillo, we could actually see a, a larger craft beer, you know, market as a whole. So then even though I only have a percentage of it, it you know, I, it'd be a bigger, a bigger market to pull from. Do you have any growth plans for the near term? Uh, we're actively pursuing um, a second facility and we're looking to um, make more product. I mean, we, we're maxed out at our current spot. So, you know, we made projections on how much beer we would make and how much space that would take up in our current space over a, you know, five to 10 year period. And, you know, even though we're at year in in the middle of year three, I guess you're we're right at three and a half years old. Um, we're more like year six or seven in our in our sales plan. So, um, so yeah, we're we're looking to we're looking to grow. And finally, 
What about your name? What the heck is a Pondicetta? <laughs> so it's a it's an homage to home. So Pondicetta is actually a reference to a road, and it's the first road as you drive south from Canyon towards uh, towards Happy or towards Lubbock. And so we wanted to call out home, but not be too on the nose. And you know, so so the cool thing is now if you search Pondicetta, there's some map listings that come up, and and then us. And so we thought that was a, a pretty awesome thing. Um, we've also since had people who assume that it's referring to the plant, which is our logo, which is actually just a juxtaposition of a, a, a yucca plant. So sort of a torment of West Texas <laughs> nature and, and a hop cone on top. So, but if you, if you start typing in Google, the suggestive search is what is a Pondicetta plant? So it's basically a, a, a street name that has no meaning, but if you know, you know. Yeah, that's a, I think that's a good way to put that. Our guest today has been Caleb West, owner at Pondicetta Brewing in Amarillo. Caleb, give us your best shot. Okay, so I want everybody to branch outside of their comfort zone. Try something new after they hear this, and I want you to support an Amarillo business. been listening to Buff Speak from the Paul and Virginia Angler College of Business at West Texas A&M University. Our executive producer is Justin Lovell and Allison Hunter is our associate producer. Our co-editors are Maverick Evans and Paul Torres. Lindsay Bjork is our director of marketing and outreach initiatives, which includes overseeing Buff Speak. Dr. Jeffrey Babb is director of accreditation and is our technical consultant. Finally, Dr. Amjad Abdullah is Dean of the College. You can find us online at wtamu.edu slash cob for more information about our programs. Be sure to check out our many academic offerings. Come for the quality, stay for the small classes, affordable tuition, and friendly approachable professors. And look online at our faculty blog, profspeak.com, for more insights. You can listen to BuffSpeak on your favorite podcast portal, as well as on our website, buffspeak.biz. And if you like what you've been hearing, don't be afraid to share us with your friends, colleagues, and family. Word of mouth has always been the best form of advertising. Until next time, love one another. For the Paul and Virginia Angler College of Business at West Texas A&M University, I am Dr. Nick Gerlich. And as always, go Buffs! Buff Speak.